0: Hi everyone, this is Corina and Angel. Welcome to The Human Show, proudly presented and supported by worldpodcast.com. Here we explore the relationships between people, technology and business. Join us on this journey where we interview anthropologists, other researchers and industry people from all over the world, from India to Kenya, US, Europe, to right back here in New Zealand. In this episode, we will be talking to Susanna Trinka, an Associate Professor in Social and Medical Anthropology at the University of Auckland, New Zealand. Through stories from her fieldwork, Susanna will tell us about the complex social world surrounding the use of medical apps. We will talk about how people engage with the app and each other. We will talk about digital etiquette, the ethics and regulation of medical technology, and about how to take your next step as a student of anthropology. We hope you enjoy it.
1: So let's just dive right into it. So in your own definition, how would you define anthropology and medical technology?
2: The intersection between the two or sort of more broadly, what is anthropology and then how does it relate to digital? Both if
1: you want, however you want to explain it.
2: Well, I'm a social anthropologist or as is known in the United States, a cultural anthropologist. And so my interest is in human society and human relations And as broad as that sounds, that's probably the kind of fundamental definition of social or cultural anthropology. And within that, there's, you know, as digital technologies are growing and expanding and flourishing and sort of, I don't want the word taking over or seeping, all that sounds quite (laughs) nefarious, but are entangled with so many different facets of our life today, I think many anthropologists who started looking in other areas like religion or art or certainly medicine or the body um, are finding themselves looking at digital technologies today as one very primary facet of how we live our everyday lives and constitute our identities and relate with one another.
1: Yes, yeah, definitely a growing study. So how did you find your way into it?
2: I, I've done many different projects. Um, I'm trying to think I, my first research was in Fiji in 1999. So some time ago looking at political violence, but over time I got very interested in issues of self-responsibility and how, um, Again, the language is very loaded. I don't want to say patients, but people in general think about their bodies and think about their health and this move towards taking responsibility for your own care. And I recently wrote a book on asthma, which looked at particularly young people, children and youth with asthma, uh, comparing the situation in New Zealand and the situation in the Czech Republic. And one of the striking things there was that Czech Republic has much lower rates of asthma, but very intensive care and very intensive kind of hands-on, medically uh, supervised. Uh, the The power and authority is with your specialist. You don't go see a GP. As soon as you've got asthma, you go see a specialist. And it's in their kind of control what happens with you. And in comparison, New Zealand is one of the countries that has the highest rates of children's and youth asthma. And yet very much the sort of um, source of responsibility is on the patient, or if they're quite young, on the patient's family. And so I started looking at those questions of self-responsibility. And that was written up in a book that um came out last year. It's now 2018, so 2017. It was called One Blue Child. And I kind of finished with the asthma topic, and I thought, I still really want to understand this idea of self-responsibility. And it seemed like digital care was one facet of that, in that there's so many apps. Um, at last count, there's something like 260,000 health apps out there. And they're mainly focused on what we can do as individuals to monitor or improve or optimize our own mental and uh, physical well-being. And I thought this is an excellent place to kind of try and expand this interest that I developed around asthma, which was really around kind of patient, doctor, family, state relations, and to bring in the aspect of technology. And I thought initially I was going to be looking at people and technology, like the individual's relationship to technology. And I thought, okay, of course, there'll be corporations as part of that because they design the apps. But what really then struck me was the kind of inner sociality that occurs through these apps.
1: Do you want to go back into what type of relationships you've seen between these people and the apps that they interact with? Well, it
2: seems like... There's two kinds of dynamics that take us outside of that classic image of me and my app. Mm-hmm. You know, I want to improve my sleep, so I get a sleep app. Or I want to track calories, I want to lose weight, mm-hmm. I want to run, um, I've got diabetes, I need to measure certain things, my blood glucose during the day, I have my app. Um, there's two things that sort of make that much more mm-hmm. complex and interesting and one is the kind of forms of intersocial relations you create through apps? And one of the interesting things we've been finding in our interviews and in initially our kind of self-tests, because while we were waiting to get the ethics approval and we couldn't actually interview anybody, we had about two months where we were waiting. I've um, been working on this for three summers now with a summer scholar each year. Wow. And so they're working full-time, and so they had to do something yeah. while we were <laughs> waiting for the ethics. So I had her actually try different apps and this was my experience her experience and then the experience of some of the young people we spoke with Mm -hmm. was that oftentimes people start an app thinking i'm recording my information and yeah there'll be some you know organization that's collecting it but they may not even realize that it's the default to switch on to sharing it with other people other users and so in one case, a young woman we spoke with was using an emotions app, something like Vent, I'm not sure the exact one, or a mood tracker, and she started writing in things like, um, I'm really sad today, and then she'd get a message from someone who said, I'm feeling really sad too, or, you know, look on the bright side, mm-hmm. or, you know, I can't remember the exact messages, and she was stunned because she didn't actually realize it was set for that setting. Now, what happened was she chose to respond to one of those people, and they started messaging back and forth. And as the messages were developing, she started to imagine who this person was, that it was a young woman who, the person who was writing back and forth with her told her, "Um, I'm really sad because I'm having trouble with my parents, my parents drink too much, Mm -hmm. and sometimes I think I'm going to end it all. And so the interviewee was quite upset by this and started, you know, going back and forth and imagining her to be this young, vulnerable woman somewhere. And this went on throughout the course of a few days. And the interviewee, um, you know, she started feeling happy again, she wasn't feeling so sad and so upset, and she'd still get these messages from someone who was in quite emotional strife. And they would come at odd times, she was having dinner with her boyfriend, and suddenly there comes a message saying, you know, help, I'm feeling desperate. And she didn't know kind of how to set a boundary, how to back off, how do you kind of try and delimit this, if you feel like you want to help someone, Mm. And then in the end, she just wrote something like, I'm actually doing fine. That other person kept writing to her. She didn't respond. The other person said, I'm really upset you're not responding. And then she deleted the app. And months later, when we interviewed her, she was still very, very upset about this encounter and not sure she'd done the right thing. And it was interesting when we started questioning her, like, well, how do you know it was a young woman? Did she say she was a young woman? Well, no, it was actually a very gender neutral username, but it sounded like what a young woman would say. She had sort of established this entire relationship in her mind with this person who's a very real person, but may not be the same person that she's imagining. And she didn't quite know ethically, at what point can I extract myself
1: Leading on from that, to what extent do you think the people that build or sustain such apps are responsible for this sort of going on or like how they should be thinking about the ethics of their technology and the relationships that it builds and sustains?
2: I certainly think the people who are designing the apps should be thinking through these questions, Mm -hmm. but I don't necessarily think the responsibility lies with them. Yeah. I think it's about establishing cultural norms. And Alana Gershon, who's written a lot about, um, digital tech and young people, she wrote a book, uh, Breakup 2.0, which is about how young university students use, I think it's just delimited to Facebook, but about mm-hmm. social media and how we use it to establish intimate, or romantic relationships and also to end mm-hmm. these relationships. And she has a very interesting idea about kind of idioms of expression, idioms of practice, that it takes time to develop. So those kinds of social norms, you know, if I'm a new colleague in an office building and someone invites me to dinner, that's kind of a social pleasantry that we all know how to deal with. If I then invite that person to come to dinner at my house the very next day, that's a bit odd, Mm-hmm. And uh, Pierre Bourdieu writes about that, about the timing of reciprocity and how we kind of just have a an idea of, of the rules of the game. If I invite you, Angel, for dinner yeah. next week, you'd probably wait a few weeks before you invite me to your house. Or you might not invite me, but you might find a way of smoothing over the fact yeah. that you didn't invite me and keeping the relationship kind of going. That's what, with this new technology that's so radically different because I've got my phone on me at all times. Yes. Right now someone could be messaging me for some app that I'm connected with and I have to choose and I have to help determine, not individually but collectively, what is an appropriate way of dealing with that person. One of the
0: things that comes with an app is that you don't know where that person is from, right? Could be from Hong Kong. Could yes. Could be from Ghana. Um, texting you um, via that app. And then those cultural norms are very country or culture specific. Yes. How do you go beyond that or should you go beyond that? Or how do you, how do you even come close to thinking through those things?
2: I mean, I think there's some very basic things you can do as a developer, like make the defaults obvious mm-hmm. so you have to click. You know, when mm-hmm. you install the app, you have to click yes or no, so you know if your information mm-hmm. is being transmitted to other users. I and mean, that kind of, before we started this project, I th- assumed that that was inherent yeah. in most apps. Yes. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think there's some things on on that level. But on the other hand... We do such creative things, and as you point out, people are coming from such different positions Mm -hmm. and understandings of what is social communication, what is a friend, and what is not a friend, and how do we communicate Mm -hmm. with each other, where do our sort of boundaries lie. Um, that it would be impossible to try and foresee all of these things. Just like um, I'm sure the people that came up with Pokemon Go mm-hmm. weren't thinking it was going to become a wild trend for young people with social anxiety disorders. Mm-hmm. And yet a number of people sort of repurposed the app or found a new purpose in it as trying to combat a mental health issue that they have. We've been talking
0: a bit to our other guests around that topic of agency and how mm. people yeah. basically appropriate a technology and they use it for the things that they think it makes sense and how companies should, to a certain extent, feel comfortable that this will happen and actually see it as a as a as a positive thing. Yes, and embrace it as a channel of communication. And um, have you seen that happening in New Zealand as well?
2: Oh, absolutely! People are using apps for completely different. Mm-hmm purposes, often related, but maybe not the in intended use of the app. Probably the most common one we found was women with um, mental health issues using period trackers as a way of trying to, um, keep tabs on their mental well-being and it may or may not be linked to their menstrual cycle but it's a useful way of having a kind of monthly sense of when you're up or you're down or you're sad or um, when you might be uh, finding life a bit challenging. Also found people you know making a game out of an app sort of gaming the app um competitive between each other. So like a sleep app, two uh, roommates, young men were telling us that they were both trying, they both downloaded the sleep app at the same time and they're both trying to get a hundred percent score simply to see which flatmate would win. One of them went out and got very drunk one night, came home, slept 12 hours, and got 100% on the sleep app. And as he put it, he felt like it was winning a video game. It was like he clocked the app, he won, and then he could just delete it. It had nothing to do with sort of improving their sleep. It was like which one of us could kind of win this game. I mean, there's some cases where we found people that used apps just because they came up with their phone. And they didn't have a particular interest in that app, but hey, look, it's there. Let's give it a go. But in most cases, you download or purchase the app for a particular reason and you enter it. I would say with a sense of purpose, like I'm going to do this. I'm, this is a tool that I'm going to use to achieve X. From there, where it went, it could go many, many different directions. You could use the tool to achieve X. You could not achieve X and sometimes start to feel very demotivated. And so we had a lot of people, particularly with things like weight apps or calorie counting apps, that they would say, well, you know, by lunchtime I'd exceeded my calories, so I said, you know, what the hell, I'll just go have a big piece of cake. Um, why, why bother trying? I'll never reach what this. But unlike other self-improvement programs where you write it down on a piece of paper or you, you know, keep a diary or a log, Obviously, one of the things that the apps do is that they send you reminders. So they will remind you, have you gone for your run today? You haven't logged your last calorie, you know, your last meal. And so a number of particularly younger people we spoke with would start to feel hounded by the app. And so something that they kicked off would almost sort of flip back on them. And the language they used was really interesting. Sometimes it was a sort of a gentle, they they said, the app sends you notifications like, we miss you, come back to calorie counting. Kind of like Facebook will say, you haven't been on Facebook for a while. And other times it really seemed like they felt hounded, particularly by these things like calorie counting or quite extreme fitness regimes that they had set up, that they felt like the app was telling them and making them feel guilty and kind of chasing after them to do something that they either felt unable to or no longer interested. You could say you could just delete the app, but they seem to have set up much more complicated affective relations with the app than just, oh, I can delete this now. I'm not counting calories anymore.
1: Um, So from what you've said, these apps and that have changed the ways we act. They've changed how people are now sleeping. It's changed how we talk to each other, you know, instantly getting messages or tons of messages. Mm. So would you say that these apps are kind of redefining the world we live in?
2: I wouldn't want that as sort of a blanket statement. Susanna Trunka says apps (laughs) redefining the world. Yes, they are redefining the world, but many things redefine Donald Trump has redefined the world (laughs) many things are redefining the world but yes they are affecting things that I think we don't even quite think about you know when we first came up with the idea of apps I don't think we thought about sleep trackers and I certainly don't think we thought about people competing with each other to see who would get the most sleep I don't think that's what they were designed for I mean Interesting, I'm thinking of one young man we interviewed who was um, in his mid-20s, I think he was about 24, and he was an IT guy. And in his um, company where he worked, it was quite a small company, and every year they would come up with some sort of fitness challenge that had some sort of digital side to it. So one year everybody did Fitbit and they saw who made the most progress and he really wanted to win and he didn't win and he was quite distraught about all of that. But then the next year he they got to choose which app they would work with and he chose an app called Inflow, um, which was supposed to help him get in touch with his emotional, mental state and be more kind of in flow, in the zone, with the kind of work he's doing. So less scattered, less multitasking. And he had to record his um, emotions. I can't remember if it was every hour or every two hours during the working uh, awake time, but it was quite frequently And the first thing that he noticed was that to sort of preempt the app, he would try and either make himself feel happy or do more things to make himself feel happy. So let's say at 10 a.m., the app sort of sent a reminder saying, how are you feeling now? And he said, oh, pretty down. He didn't want at 12 to say, I'm still feeling down. So he'd go and, you know, eat a piece of cake or whatever. I don't know what exactly he did. He would do something to lift his emotion so that when that next reminder came in, he could actually say something positive. He thought it had a very positive effect on his life because he was doing more things that made him feel good. But one of his criticisms of it was that the whole point was to get into a space where he feels good and he can concentrate. And he would say sometimes he'd be, feeling great, doing something totally in flow with the project he was doing. And he'd get this reminder, it's time to tell us how you're feeling. And it would completely interrupt his stream of consciousness. And so the inflow app was taking him out of flow. And so I think it's these sorts of kind of conundrums where the way you actually integrate it into your everyday living Mm. can be quite different. Once you start recording your emotions not only do you reflect on them, but you might actually tailor them. Mm. The other thing that is, I think everybody knows about is this phenomenon of cheating, which is where I'm not feeling good, but I'm going to say I'm feeling good. Mm. Or when I, my research assistant, my summer scholar, was working on this, she was being paid by the university as a research assistant. She didn't have any deep invested reason to do these apps. And she came to me within a few weeks and said, I really want to lie when it says, you know, how far did you run or how long did you meditate? I feel really bad that I meditated for 15 minutes instead of half an hour. And we talked this through because it was a fascinating phenomenon because it wasn't like she was doing a self-improvement program. She was being paid to try out the app. But she said she felt really dismal when she didn't get the little star or the little sticker that said, you've done really well today. And I think it's, that's an interesting place where I think anthropologists can sort of shed light on the way that we constitute ourselves in different settings. And people talk about, young people talk about cheating, about their representation of themselves online. And yet there's also a sense if you gain something, if I don't run five kilometers, but I put that in my fitness app, It changes the Susanna Trunka who's part of that, whatever that fitness app network is. And I think anthropologists have talked about us Mm -hmm. and this idea that who I am as an anthropologist is different than who I am as a mother, who I am as a daughter, as a sister. Maybe that's different than who I am when I go online on these different apps. And it's not just about lying. It's about creating a certain persona which is what I do in other contexts. And so I derive a sense of satisfaction when I see Susanna Trunk of five kilometers, even if in real life I didn't run those five kilometers. And I think that's a phenomenon we need to really look at a bit more, rather than just saying it's a false, you know, it's lying or it's a false deceptive move. There's something you get from it. Or like, you know, you go on Facebook and you put all these happy pictures of yourself, but you're actually feeling miserable. That's not just about deception. That's about another Mm side, constituting another side of myself in a different way. I was wondering, because you started your discussion around your personal story with the concept of self-care.
0: Yes. and how self-care relates to medicine. And and it made me think like, because you've been talking through, you know, self-care through the apps brings all new different dimensions versus self-care through I have a notebook that I, I'm accountable to myself via that notebook, but the notebook can't come back at me and send me reminders or it can't connect me to other people that can access me yes. in my moment. It's just an object there that sits quiet and I use it as I see fit. Um, so I was wondering if you can talk more to what happens to the whole process of self care, mm-hmm. um, when you're engaging digital technologies versus non-digital technologies. Yeah. And is that, how is that different, good or bad?
2: Well, I think one of the really interesting thing is that we don't necessarily separate them out. And that's what struck me was when we talked with people who use, say, fitness apps mm-hmm. and turned off the communication with other users, didn't use the log, just used the app to do the training regime and then had a piece of paper on their refrigerator where they would graph, you know, 10 minutes or 20 minutes or what they achieved. Mm-hmm. Um, or a young woman we met who had an issue with calorie counting apps a few years ago, where she felt like she became obsessed with losing weight, and now she, you know, really was trying to back off from that obsession. And she got—I think it was a Fitbit. It was some sort of recording device that would show you how many calories you had burnt. And she took a piece of sticky tape and stuck it on the calorie counter so she could see the rest of the watch, but not the calorie counter. And so we're still kind of cobbling these two together in ways that work for us. And that really surprised me because I thought there'd be the techno geeks and then there'd be the rest of us. And actually, all of us are using some sort of app, whether we know it or not um, I don't think there is that line between those who are going technological and those who aren't and I think we are kind of using old-fashioned technology sometimes to make that digital technology work for us. Mm. Otherwise we're putting a lot of time in trying to tailor those apps and learning the different settings mm. so that they're doing what we want them to do. Yeah. but few of us are actually you know investing that time or have that time mm. to do that.
0: I wonder what would the companies that build these apps, how would they react to this kind of reality of, of the usage of these apps? Um, have you been exploring that side too in, in your research?
2: I would imagine they'd be surprised that you're putting sticky tape on your <laughs> Fitbit. You know, I don't think that's something that when we have that image mm-hmm. of what we do with this technology, um, most of us would. You know, But I thought that was incredibly creative and incredibly strong that she knew that she had this issue, mm-hmm. she wanted to protect herself against that possibility. And this, I'm sure there is some way you could actually turn off that setting or, mm-hmm. you know, I'm, I'm guessing that there, you know, if you read enough, you could figure out a way to disable it. I would assume I, I might be wrong. But what what an easy solution, just to put a piece of tape over it. We've, we've done a few projects here in New Zealand in the
0: space of technology and it, it always struck me how businesses look at people as users, Mm. you know, and, and they try to isolate that context of usage and get you, because most of the people that build it are, have an engineer, either background or actually mindset. Mm -hmm. and, And they want a linear way of moving from one place to another, right? How do they move from A to B to C? And it's easier to see somebody as a kind of a user going through the motions. And you being that informer educator that tells them how it works. Mm. And, and that paints a very clear picture of development. Um, and, and then we, when you come back to them and you, you try to show the messiness of, of real life, and that kind of like, they look at you with a question Also, what do I do with that? How can that help me Uh, maybe switch a step B with C or, you know, but not really questioning the whole framework. Yes. You know, how can I make a better framework that that responds to this messiness? Would you think that is even
2: possible? I think it's definitely possible as long as you open up those avenues of communication Mm. with those who are using your product and you're willing to think more widely about the ways that it's employed. Mm-hmm. I mean, we all know that phenomenon when you buy a new piece of technology and you get the printout, the little handbook. We just got a new fridge the other day. My son wanted to find out what's the optimum temperature. You know, and you, you, you flick through it. Oh, look, here's it in Italian, here's it in French. Oh, here's the English. Okay, page five of it. Here's the optimal temperature. I've skipped reading everything else because I don't have time. Mm-hmm. You know, and I used to way before, before I studied, I'd done anthropology as an undergraduate, but before I went and did my graduate work, I worked for two years at a software company called GeoWorks, which is now defunct. This was in California. And I was a tech writer that wrote those handbooks, you know, and you sit there imagining if someone starts on page one, by the time they get to page 53, they'll understand nobody does that, and particularly today, when we're used to going online, click here, click there. Mm-hmm. Where's the answer to my question? So I think we need to sort of think about products in that way that people are going to dive in and zero in on one aspect. The the period app that helps me track my emotions. I'm not even interested in my menstrual cycle. Mm-hmm. You know. So how can you work the product so it's multifaceted? But I don't think you'll ever be able to determine its usage in full. Just like I don't think you can determine the kind of social norms mm-hmm. or kind of cultural conduct through that app. You can, and I think you should think about the various mm-hmm. possibilities and their ramifications, yeah. but you can't predetermine it. That's for us as people, as members of overlapping societies of users to determine that. Mm-hmm.
0: I want to come back to the topic of governance because you were talking earlier quite a lot around sociality and technology and how, how people kind of use technologies to engage as a community, as a group with that particular topic. So to a certain extent then, especially when you talk about medical Conditions or self-care in with the context of medical conditioning, do you think it's necessary to have some governance rules around that? And if yes, how who should be the organisation or what form should that take in setting up that mm. governance?
2: I think internationally there's very interesting moves around that topic and it's changing quite a bit with this sort of proliferation of health apps um, that are out there. Uh, there's definitely an awareness of a need for oversight. At the moment, the oversight exists if you're defined as a medical device. Mm-hmm. And there are, in, you know, in the U.S. you have the FDA. In Europe, you have different governing bodies that set up this definition of what is a medical device. So I wouldn't want to give a one-size-fits-all definition. But in general, it's something that helps you diagnose and then respond mm-hmm. To a condition. Now, there's many apps out there that are not being regulated, which people are using. They may not be intended to help you diagnose, but like, you know, young, one young woman we knew when she was 15, 16, felt depressed. Googled chat sites for depression, ended up on a website, Seven Cups of Tea, self-diagnosed herself with depression, and now speaks of that as a diagnostic label, the same way as if her GP said to her, you have depression, Mm -hmm. and she's come up and, you know, researched certain strategies for coping with her depression. She ended up becoming what they call a listener on Seven Cups of Tea, where people can contact her, and she helps them diagnose depression. Now, that's not under the FDA or whatever regulatory body because if you look at seven cups of tea, it's really a support, advice, counseling, but not with, you know, some of them are trained counselors and many of them are, are lay people mm-hmm. acting as counselors. So it's not regulated, but people they are certainly using that. Mm-hmm. To diagnose and then act on. The stuff that tends to be regulated is when you hold up your mobile and you can measure your temperature or you can measure your heart rate or something like Mm -hmm. that. Um, Those sorts of technologically apparatuses that measure things and may help you determine, Mm -hmm. ah, there's something wrong here. But all of that is shifting and there's Mm -hmm. huge debates um, within that arena about how do we try and manage these materials Mm -hmm. What I think is interesting is the way that we're trying to manage them socially.
0: I have another question around the engagement between the local companies and the social science field. And if you can talk a bit to that um, in the New Zealand context from your mm-hmm. experience, how do you see that relationship right now? Very embryonic,
2: yeah. <laughs> just sort of mm-hmm. starting.
0: Do you have um, any projects that you would want to reference as some good Embryonic
2: emerging things? I mean, the ones I know of would be in the United States or Mm. elsewhere. Not New Zealand. I mean, I don't, I can't, I'm sure they exist, Mm. but I don't really see those relationships as much as you might think Mm. they'd be there.
0: What do you think is preventing that? Because there's, there's obviously a, a huge body of knowledge to be accessed um,
2: inside the New Zealand academic space. I think everyone's looking internationally to mm-hmm. build international contacts on both sides.
0: Mm. Well, what about with, and that takes me to the point with the new graduates, right? Uh, mm-hmm. That are coming out um, of anthropology and looking for alternative Spaces of work. Would you see there a much stronger
2: potential of kind of starting a dialogue? I think the university would like to set up such a connection. Mm -hmm. I think that when you come out with a BA in anthropology, there's many different facets of your university training that you can use Mm -hmm. in different contexts you haven't had research experience mm-hmm. and because and you you can't do your first research experience on your own i don't think mm-hmm. that would be incredibly difficult i think that's what you gain through the masters mm-hmm. if you do a thesis research based masters then you have that ability mm-hmm. of having thought through and conducted an independent study of a certain you know substance and depth which gives you an idea of how to operate as an anthropologist. Mm. So I'd be hesitant on the level of the BA to say you're ready to do anthropological Mm -hmm. research. You may have learned the different skills, but you haven't actually put it into into practice. practice. But I think you've learned a lot about cross-cultural analysis. Mm -hmm. You've learned a lot about kind of I go back to your point about where is the power who has the power you've learned a lot about power dynamics and you've learned a lot about critical thinking mm. and I think those are ideal skills for whatever context you go into whether it be business or NGOs or volunteer work mm. um, those skills will help you with a capacity to do research to engage with people and to think about how to communicate more effectively. Hmm.
0: And for those that are maybe looking to start their career in a business once they've already done their self-study, what would you say to kind of help them self-diagnose, right? Like, is it for me or not? Or is there's nothing like experience to offer you those answers? Whether
2: to study anthropology. No, whether to apply it
0: in, in an applied business context. Or just continue um, with the academic track or go into government work
2: or... Look, I'm going to plug the academic track. I'm going to be honest. <laughs> I think there is a lot mm. to be gained by doing a PhD. Mm. And I know there is a sense now of, oh, there's neoliberalization and the universities are you know falling apart and it's not <laughs> what it used to be. I still think with all of that in mind... Thinking of the 21st century university, it's not what it was 100 years ago or 200 years mm. ago. It's still a space for critical thinking that enables a level of freedom and demands a sense of rigor and analysis outside of the demands of corporations mm. and capital mm. and profit making. And I think we need to defend that. And I think that Mm. is really, really important. And so when I have students who are smart and able and creative, I think, why not go do Mm. a PhD? You're not going to get this experience. Yes, it's great if you then become an anthropologist at X Corporation or whatever, Mm. but you're not going to have this sort of experience Mm. of come up with a topic, think it through, operationalize it so it actually works Mm. and then go do it because that is what is motivating you. Not because someone needs to make money off of something, but because that is an important question in society. Mm. And go and explore it without the sense of how am I going to fulfill my corporation or my bosses or my, you know, these different prerogatives. Mm. Go and explore it for the sake of scholarly knowledge. Yeah. And I think that's amazing. And if you, you have that possibility, I would grab it. Yeah. I I think
0: that's amazing too follow uh, that quest for knowledge and um, yes
2: it's a definite privilege but i think it's a privilege that we need mm. we need to hold yeah. on to yes. and try and ensure for as many people mm. as we possibly can yes
1: it's been awesome having you Susanna, okay. and it's been just great we'll put up anything that you want to share with people okay. up on the site maybe like some of the work you've done or websites mm. just so great. they can get an idea of what
2: you do and stuff okay thank you <laughs> thank you so much thank you it's been a real pleasure <laughs> Thank you for
0: listening, everyone. Follow us on our social media channels and look at the show notes for links to our speakers' work. Join us next time for more interesting conversations.